0: Looks like we did make that $575 challenge. Thanks to all of
1: you who pledged.
0: are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for a cover-to-cover open book.
1: Overthrow. America's Century Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq, written by former New York Times foreign correspondent Stephen Kinzer. I'm Eric Klein, and this is Open Book. Why did you uh, go about writing this book, Overthrow?
0: Every time I visit a foreign country, I'm always asking myself, why is this country like this? How did this country get to be rich and powerful? Or how did it get to be poor and isolated? Um, The more I started asking that question and learning about the history of many countries, the more I realized that uh, outside intervention, in many cases intervention by the United States, had decisively shaped the course of these countries' histories. Uh, So I set out to write about these interventions, and I did it in several books. I wrote a book about the U.S. overthrow of the government of Guatemala in 1954, then the Iran coup of 1953. I also wrote about American intervention in Nicaragua, and in each of these cases, I thought that I'd done a great job of telling the full story of these overthrows. Uh, but after a while, I came to realize that you can't really understand any of these operations if you consider them to be a series of separate, unrelated episodes. Only when you study them together as a continuum that stretches over more than a 100 years do you come to understand the patterns that crop up time and time again, uh, when that in turn allows you perhaps to extract some lessons from the study of these interventions as a whole that you might not be able to extract if you study them individually?
1: And so let, well, let's start at the beginning. In, uh, 1893, a handful of Americans, uh, along with, uh, some help from the U.S. government, but, but not as much as, as the other cases, uh, overthrew the, the government of Hawaii. Uh, what lessons can we learn from that, and, and what, what was going on there? That, that's that's almost a very that's a very buried moment in American history.
0: This was really the first time that the U.S. government directly conspired with people who uh, sought to overthrow a foreign government. Uh, there had been a number of uh, American missionaries who had gone over to Hawaii to. Uh, as they would see it, uh, raise up the heathen savages and Christianize the nation. Uh, over a period of years, these missionaries and their sons came to realize that there was a lot of money to be made in Hawaii. Uh, they went into the sugar business, which also involved the displacement of Native peoples. Uh, after a while, there developed a conflict between the interests of Native Hawaiians and their monarchy on the one hand, and the interests of the uh, American-based uh, new uh, missionary planter class that emerged during the late 19th century. Uh, this led to a decision by the white planters and their allies to overthrow the uh, monarchy in Hawaii, and they did this uh, in collaboration with uh, the U.S. government in Washington. The leader of this group of uh, white Hawaiians traveled to Washington, uh, met with the uh, Secretary of the Navy, received a uh, go-ahead from the President of the United States, Benjamin Harrison, and went back to Hawaii with news that the United States was ready to support the conspirators in Hawaii if they would overthrow the Hawaiian government. Uh, so what happened was these uh, white, uh, mostly American planters and their allies simply declared one day in the January of 1893 that they were the new government and that the queen was overthrown before the queen could step in to put down their rebellion the United States landed troops in Honolulu and surrounded a couple of buildings where the uh, coup plotters had barricaded themselves and uh, simply recognized this new group as the legitimate government of Hawaii. That made it impossible for anyone to attack that government. Uh, and with that expedient, uh, the monarchy was overthrown. Five years later, Hawaii became a uh, part of the United States.
1: Well, I I just love the story, but I'm actually uh, tempted to leave it at that and move right along. I mean, because it was a very unique moment in American history that that an island nation was uh, kind of uh, overthrown, but moving right along to the Spanish-American War, it it became less unique, uh, and uh, the United States sort of entered a whole new era.
0: I think you could argue that the uh, American-supported overthrow of the monarchy in Hawaii was not part of a conscious global strategy. It was a confluence of circumstances. Uh, The events of 1898, however, were very different. Uh, Just five years after the uh, American-sponsored and uh, encouraged coup in Hawaii, the entire American people really were seized by a, a huge passion for this cause of Cuba Libre, uh, the uh, Hearst and Pulitzer press was emerging during that period and people were whipped into this frenzy about Spanish oppression in Cuba uh, for a variety of other reasons, which also had to do with the American search for markets, for our uh, overproducing industries and farms, and also with our desire to have, make use of the resources of other countries. Americans were very focused abroad. Uh, Of course, in 1890, the U.S. Census Bureau had declared that the American frontier was closed. That meant there was no more room to expand within North America. All of these factors came together with uh, U.S. participation in the uh, Cuban rebellion against Spanish rule. Um, Americans were very eager to help these Cuban patriots overthrow what they saw as very wicked Spanish regime. So we offered to help the Cubans, and uh, we were very surprised when the Cuban revolutionaries were not so excited about this idea. They were worried about uh, the prospects of having some thousands of American troops on their soil. What would then happen with these troops after the revolution was won?
1: Right, and and uh, you,
0: Americans, reassured them in an act of law passed by the U.S. Congress that as soon as our troops had helped the Cuban patriots overthrow Spanish tyranny. We would pull all those troops out of Cuba and allow Cuba to become independent.
1: And and so- you, Stephen Kinzer, in your book Overthrow, you write that the that the Cuban um, the, the rebels uh, fighting against the Spanish government they they were they were already well on their way to winning before the United States got involved.
0: This was the reason why the patriots in Cuba did not necessarily jump at the offer. They thought it was a nice idea. If Americans want to come and help, that would be fine. But uh, actually weighing the dangers against uh, the stage of the revolution, maybe we'd rather not. Uh, however, the Americans convinced the Cubans to accept American help by this promise in law called the Keller Amendment. Uh, that we would withdraw as soon as Spain was defeated. So we did send troops. They were embraced by the Cuban revolutionaries. Spain was quickly defeated, but then we changed our mind. We decided not to let Cuba become independent, uh, and we did just what we had promised we wouldn't do, which is take over Cuba for ourselves and turn it into a protectorate. Uh, this is a great example of the long-term effects of these interventions. If it hadn't been for the, the anger that burned and festered in many Cuban hearts and souls and minds over generations, this uh, entire phenomenon of Castro-Communism might never have emerged in Cuba. So uh, it was during that Spanish-American War, as we like to call it, that uh, we became possessors of Cuba at the same time we took over Puerto Rico, a uh, few other little places in the, in the Pacific, like Guam, and then, most particularly, the Philippines. Uh, this was the one other intervention of that era, and it turned out to be by far the most costly. Uh, the Americans had destroyed the Spanish fleet during the Cuban War. Uh, just to make sure that it wouldn't come over and help, uh, the Spanish the, who were fighting in Cuba or maybe come over and bomb the American West Coast. That fleet happened to be anchored at that time in Manila, in the Philippines. So after we destroyed those ships, suddenly we had to wonder, what are we going to do in the Philippines now? Do, do we own it now, or do we just want a base there, or uh, since Spain is no longer the ruling power as we have destroyed its uh, navy there, shall we just allow it to become independent? We had never really focused on the Philippines the way we focused on Cuba. Um, so we decided that we would take over the Philippines. And uh, to our shock, we found that the Filipino army that had been fighting to throw the Spanish out also decided to fight against us, and that resulted in a long and bloody war that cost the lives of several thousand Americans and tens of thousands of Filipinos.
1: And, and was it was also really unique in American history because at first it was just kind of a a, a secret. Well, a, there there was definitely a, a certain kind of media blackout in nineteenth century media blackout, and and the story didn't get out until uh, many years later, in- including stories of um, U.S. military uh, torture of, uh, of the troops, abuse of, of prisoners of war a uh, 100 years ago, which shocked America.
0: The Philippines was actually the place where uh, the United States had its first torture scandal. Uh, soldiers that started to come back after they were rotated out of service in the Philippines were telling terrible stories to reporters about things that they had done in the Philippines. And finally, when press censorship in the Philippines was lifted, some of these atrocities were reported at first hand. This resulted in a congressional investigation. But under the skilled leadership of Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who had been given this assignment by. President Theodore Roosevelt, the investigation was quietly quashed and uh, never came to anything. The argument being that uh, since the United States its soldiers were fighting in a faraway land where people had very brutal cultures and tactics, we could not be expected to live up to the standards that might normally be expected from American soldiers.
1: Quite, quite a chapter in American history. Moving right along to... Uh... The Central America. What what is important to know about um the president uh, of of Nicaragua at, at that time in in the in the early nineteen hundreds, uh, Zelaya?
0: President Zelaya of Nicaragua really was a fascinating figure. So he emerged just before the beginning of the 19th century. At that time, Nicaragua had been under what was called the gobierno de los 40 años, the 40-year government. It was basically 40 years of rule by the conservative party, a small oligarchy that was uh, essentially the heir to the Spanish colonial system with its heavy reliance on uh, clerical power and feudal land-holding structures. Uh, Zelaya, on the other hand, was a liberal. This was a new movement that had emerged from Spain and spread over parts of Central and South America. It was anti-clerical. It was devoted to trying to build up a middle-class, a capitalist economy rather than feudal agriculture. Zelaya built roads and schools and hospitals and ports. Um, He started the first baseball league in Nicaragua. He had been educated in Europe and came home with a Belgian wife. He was a, a great modernizer. But inevitably his nationalism, his desire to develop Nicaragua, always to put Nicaragua's interests first, led him into clashes with American companies that were trying to extract resources in Nicaragua. Those companies turned for help to the U.S. government, and the U.S. government then helped uh, to overthrow Zelaya in uh, 1909. That probably ended the most promising period in the history of Nicaragua and contributed to the fact that this has been not only one of the most unstable countries in the world in the hundred years since then, but a country where you see perhaps more than any other country in the world this continuing cycle of U.S. intervention, imposition of an unpopular government, rebellion against that government, U.S. intervention to crush that rebellion, and then the cycle starts all over again.
1: And it also sort of maybe opens up an, another chapter that you describe in your book—not a chapter in your book, but this idea that um, the United States may have a, a very uh, strong economic like partnership with the with a country overseas, some uh, a country that embraces capitalism and 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 has all the same sorts of values that the United States holds dear, but also uh, wants a certain amount of independence from United States corporations and the the values are left aside, and, and that independence is the crime that, that causes overthrow.
0: One of the patterns that you see when you study these interventions uh, together is that you know, oftentimes the crucial moment comes after we overthrow the guy we didn't like. That's usually the easy part. Then we have to decide, who do we want? Who, who would we like to run this country now? So there's two things we would like in the, in the new leader. First of all, we want somebody who's popular, somebody who can stay in power because he has the support of his people. The other thing we want is somebody who will do whatever we say, since we didn't overthrow the old guy just to put in somebody new that won't carry out our orders. We soon realize you can't have both. If a person is going to be a popular leader of his country, it has to be, Above all, because he places the interests of his own country first. Nobody wants to have a president or a leader who puts the interests of some other country first. But when you do put the interests of your own country first, that means by definition that you are not putting the interests of the United States first. So then we have to decide, which would we prefer? Somebody who will be popular, or somebody who will do what we say. And it's usually a pretty easy choice.
1: The, The do what we say, and then a dictatorship, and then... Crimes upon crimes. L- what about Honduras and uh, Sam Zamuri, the, the banana tycoon? What's, what's unique about uh, the U.S. overthrow of the Honduras government?
0: Uh, the overthrow of Nicaragua's government in 1909 removed the principal liberal figure in Central America. That was President Zelaya. Now, there was a president in nearby Honduras who was also uh, a follower of Zelaya, also a liberal. Uh, this guy Davila was trying to impose a new kind of law on Honduras that would allow for national development. One of the things that he wanted to do was to limit the amount of land that foreigners could own in Honduras. Now, at that time, Honduras was dominated by banana concerns controlled by this one fascinating, visionary American businessman named Sam Zamuri. Zamuri uh, was really one of the uh, principal forces who imagined the whole banana industry in Central America. Uh, and uh, he once said that in uh, Central America... A mule costs more than a congressman. He bought plenty of both during his career, and uh, when he confronted the fact that there was a president of Honduras who wanted to limit the amount of land he could own in Honduras and wanted to break up big banana plantations in order to give plots of land to poor Honduran families, uh, he refused to accept this. And so he started a revolution in Honduras, which ultimately received the tacit support of the United States. With that revolution, uh, another liberal government, the government of Honduras, was overthrown. And uh, a person who had worked with... Sam Zemurray to organize that revolution in Honduras became Honduras's president and immediately rewarded Zamurri with about ten thousand acres of land and uh, permission to import all the uh, products that he wanted into Honduras tax free for the rest of his life.
1: Huh. And and that sort of concludes the imperial phase as you describe it in your book Overthrow. Your, you, Stephen uh, Stephen Kinzer, your book Overthrow describes uh, fourteen. Nations that the United States chose to uh, overthrow their government, and that brings us then to uh, the next series of governments that the United States uh did away with in a different era in in the twentieth century um more in a they 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 put away <laughs> they they took the tool out of the toolkit of uh, invasions with military forces and started using a an entirely different strategy to overthrow these governments uh
0: during the first phase of american intervention it was possible for uh the united states to overthrow foreign leaders by simply landing uh con- troops on their shore- shores of their countries or simply by telling them essentially you're fired uh that didn't work in the period after world war 2 it wasn't possible for america to send troops to invade other countries and the reason for that was that there was a counter force in the world, uh, that was the the Red Army, the Soviet Union. So, uh, we couldn't just be acting, uh, militarily all over the world. Any such action would invite Soviet reaction and that could spiral off into some horrible crisis. So the United States had to find a new way to, uh, overthrow governments and try to affect the course of world events. It was during this period after World War II that the CIA emerged. And it was during the uh, early part of the Eisenhower administration when the CIA emerged as a uh, tool of the overthrow of governments. Under Truman, the CIA had been used uh, for covert operations and intelligence gathering, but never to overthrow a government. Under Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles, who was the CIA director... Um, the CIA did go out and overthrow governments. Uh, they did, the CIA did this twice in the early 1950s. Uh, 1953 was the CIA-sponsored overthrow of the government of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. And then one year later, uh, the government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala was overthrown in a coup that was organized by the United States. Now, these two coups have a lot in common. In both cases, there was a resource at stake. Uh, the Iranians tried to nationalize their oil. The Guatemalans sought to... Uh, restrict the amount of land that United Fruit could use to grow its bananas. In both cases, uh, the owners of these large concessions went to their governments and asked for help, and uh, the governments in particular, the government of the United States, uh, agreed to go in and overthrow these these two regimes, in Iran and Guatemala. Now, the great irony of these overthrows is that in both countries, in Iran and Guatemala, uh, you had governments that were democratic. They were run by people and political groups who effectively embraced what we consider to be fundamental American political values. We overthrew these people and replaced them with harsh military-backed leaders who despised everything the United States stands for. So we actually... Uh, deposed people that were friendly to us in an economic, uh, imitating way. That is, they wanted to do in their country economically what we had done in our country economically, encourage domestic development and national development. But that put them in conflict with the United States. And for that reason, democratic governments in Iran and Guatemala were overthrown in the early 1950s and replaced with tyranny that ultimately led to the shedding of great amounts of blood.
1: And that, that brings us then to, to the country that's next on the list that I actually want to skip in the interest of time, but because it's, it's so fascinating and then also just entirely confusing, the, the overthrow of the government of South Vietnam in the midst of the, of the U.S. adventure uh, with that country that doomed doomed adventure. I hope you don't mind if we just uh, gloss over that one. Sure, sure, as you wish. (laughs) And then, uh, moving right along to to Chile, what what should we say about Chile in the 1970s? Um, Sort of the last clandestine uh, overthrow.
0: In many ways, the Chile coup fits in with the coups of 20 years earlier in Iran and Guatemala. Uh, That was another case where it all came down to a resource. Uh, In this case, it was copper. Uh, The uh, government of President Allende was uh, um, trying to nationalize its copper industry, and that affected two big American corporations.
1: And with the 1973 overthrow of Chile, we closed the book on the clandestine coups and turned back to the the boots-on-the-ground technique. You can call 510-848-5732 or one 800 439 Five seven three two, or go online at kpfa.org to give to the station and get a copy of the book. I asked Stephen Kinzer how he sees the U.S. overthrow of the tiny island nation, Grenada, fitting into the 14-nation spectrum that he describes in the book, Overthrow.
0: The Grenada operation in some ways was laughable. This is a tiny country whose entire population could fit inside the Rose Bowl. Uh, Nonetheless, the United States was at that moment in the early 1980s psychologically ready for some kind of a victory it hadn't been that long since our huge shattering defeat in Vietnam and then after that we'd had our hostages taken in Iran uh and more recently right on the weekend before the Grenada invasion We'd had our marine barracks in Lebanon blown up with the loss of more than 250 American lives. There was a sense that the whole world was on march against us, and we couldn't do anything about it. Our adversaries were ridiculing us and calling us a pitiful, helpless giant. And Ronald Reagan wanted to do something... Uh, to uh, fight against this uh, syndrome, and Grenada just happened to be the place that got in his way at that time.
1: And if you want to learn more about the the reasons why Grenada uh, got in the way, you'll have to have to check out the book. Uh, what about what about the Panama? That's also a very bizarre, unique little corner of American history: the overthrow of the Panamanian government.
0: Bizarre is actually a good word for that one, I think. Uh, The fact is that the demon figure on whom all our hatred was supposed to be focused during our operation in Panama, General Noriega, this thug and uh, drug trafficking criminal who had been running Panama for a number of years, had actually been working for the CIA for several decades. We'd had him on the payroll when he was just a cadet and then all the way up through being chief of intelligence for the Panamanian military, he got to the point where he was making $100,000 a year uh, just from the payments that the CIA was giving him. Then there were some problems. He was no longer supporting the American uh, project in Central America with the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, He's... Started to be kind of the marionette that wanted to pull his own strings. Uh, we decided we wanted to get rid of him, and we suddenly switched our view of him from a uh, friendly CIA asset to evil enemy. Right. Oddly and- enough. Uh, it was not only President George H.W. Bush who overthrew Noriega, but it was also that very same Mr. Bush who had been the head of the CIA when Noriega was one of the principal CIA Assets in that part
1: of the world, and and then so despite the fact that the Panamanian adventure uh, was over in less than a week, if I remember correctly, it does have a lot in common with the the last two on on your list that you describe, Stephen Kinzer, in your book Overthrow, um, Afghanistan and Iraq, in that um, the U.S. Uh, played a direct um, and terrible role in in propping up the people that they would they then uh, had to go in and knock down.
0: In Iraq, uh, it's certainly true that the United States was, at one time, the military ally of Saddam Hussein. Uh, We sent a special envoy twice to visit Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq war. That was Donald Rumsfeld. And his job was to try to figure out how we could help Saddam. Uh, I think the odd thing about the Iraq war The thing that really makes it unique in American history is that it's the only war we ever got involved in without anybody really understanding why we did it. Uh, even if you went out on the street today and asked people, why did we invade Iraq, actually? I think most people would have a hard time answering it. I know I would. Uh, I think the only way you can look at it is that there were a number of interests that a number of different groups had, uh, ranging from uh, helping Israel to taking pressure off Saudi Arabia to taking down the guy that had insulted Bush's father to capturing oil to having a strategic base in the Middle East. All these came together. Uh, in the Bush administration's desire to overthrow Iraq, in the course of this invasion, we have set forth uh, set forth uh, forces that are really coming to cause huge problems for America, not just in that part of the world, but beyond.
1: And I guess, despite the fact that it's almost inexplicable, although there's uh, an entire library of information to explain it, um, at least your book, "Overthrow." Uh, going back 110 years uh, it does sort of explain something about why the United States would would attempt such a thing, uh, since it was successful doing so 13 times previous.
0: I like to think that my book places contemporary modern-day American policy in a historical context. Uh, You know, there are some people who instinctively want to believe that George Bush ripped America away from its old-time traditions of diplomacy and negotiation, and violently brought us into this terrible new era where we go out and overthrow governments on the other side of the earth. But actually, this isn't true. Overthrowing governments and intervening in foreign countries is something that America has been doing for more than 100 years. My book is only trying to provide the information about how this happened. I am not a polemicist. I'm just hoping that people understand exactly what our history is. Then, on the basis of full knowledge, we can then decide how America ought to engage with the world in the future.